Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there are a lot of things to discuss, um, but what, what I really want to talk about is the, the notion of the, the heart and the mind, more specifically the, the eyes and the heart, how all these things uh, interconnect with each other, um, as well as uh, how, how we can learn all these things from, from the spies. And also, just how to approach sort of um, clarifying and purifying our intentions. And so that's the, these are the areas that we're going to be looking at today. Um, so, so we just read one of the, one of the most important parshas. I mean, every, every letter in the Torah is, is, is the most important letter, but in terms of actually trying to understand Jewish history and the human condition, um, Parshas, Parshas Shlachlecha, which has the, um, the, the, the whole incident with the spies and, and them sort of like searching out the land of Israel and then giving a report back to everyone else, this is one of the, the key ways to understand like why we are who we are and, and why we are where we are. Um, and, and so just to, without going into too much detail, just to give you the overview, um, the Jewish people have now left Mount Sinai. So we left Egypt, we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, we stayed at Mount Sinai for a year, by the way, okay? Now we've journeyed from Mount Sinai and we're heading toward Israel with Moshe still as our leader, so this is now like, kind of like the march toward the end of days, if you will, because the, there's a tradition that if Moshe had led us into the land of Israel, that that would have been the culmination of, of everything, okay? So now what's going to happen is like a terrible event. This is, everyone agrees, this is a terrible event where, where we basically decide that it's too scary to go into Israel because we get a report back from, from the leaders of the Jewish people that the land is filled with giants and, and, and fortresses and bizarre large fruits and like all sorts of like oddities and that we, we're not strong enough to be able to overtake the land. Um, and a mass panic among the Jewish people ensues and then God basically says, enough. And, you know, he says, you've, you've tested me these ten times. Okay? And this is actually the, the tenth test that, that we test God with. And the way I had it explained to me so beautifully was that... that that the, the reason why this was so terrible, and by the way, let me just tell you what the consequence was. They spied out the land for 40 days. And that's a very interesting number. It deserves more um, kind of more analysis. But, it, you know, when you, when you say that, that Moshe received the Torah on Mount Sinai for 40 days, you know, which is the, 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 the height of, of really the, the fullness of the number 40. Remember, 40 represents a, a notion of completion. Like a mikvah has to be 40 saw, which is 40 measurements of water. And when you emerge in a mikvah, that's like a, a rebirth type of thing that, that happens. So 40 is this, 
this notion of completeness and receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. Remember, the Torah is compared to water. So, and remember, when, when the flood came, it was 40 days. It's like God was purifying the world by turning the whole world into a mikvah, right? So the idea that here's sort of like the dark side of 40, if you will. I mean, I, I, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around it, what it means that they spied out the land for 40 days because they bring back a, a negative report. Which So anyway, um, and God says for each day they were in the land, um, you're going to wander in the desert for one year. So that's where we get the 40 years of wandering in the desert from, the 40 days that they, they spied out the land. And, you know, I, I'll tell you something. I was reading a book uh, a couple of years ago, and they were talking about a particular Hasidic Rebbe. I don't remember the, his name, but they said that he arrived in Israel, and he was, as he was getting off the plane or the boat or whatever it was, they said he was saying something very cryptic, right, that no one understood. And what he was saying was, for every day, one year, for every day, one year. And I thought, that doesn't sound so cryptic to me. <laughs> He's trying to rectify the sin of the spies. He's, al- he's arriving in Israel, and that's, he's got a very exact calculation that he's doing. Okay, is that what he had in mind? I don't know, but it sounds good to me. Um, anyway, so, so, so we, so, but, but here was, here's, the, here's the deeper point. The deeper point is that, is that God basically said that this entire generation is not going to go into the land of Israel. And why? So here's what I wanted to share. Because this generation felt like God meant bad for them. Meaning to say this idea that God could be leading them into the land in order to wipe them out. What kind of God is that? Like God is saying, like, is that what you think about me? That you think that I'm just sort of like, I'm, I'm doing all these miracles in Egypt. I'm taking you out in the most wondrous way. I'm splitting the sea. I'm opening up the heavens in order to give you the Torah because I've got this fantastic idea. I'm going to kill you all in Israel. <laughs> like, what? Like, this is, you know, to, you know, just to imagine what God might be thinking for a moment. Like, God is like, this is what you think is my plan for you? And if you think that I'm just leading you along to like a, like a cat holding a mouse by the tail and swinging it back and forth, menacing it with its teeth before it destroys it. Like if, if, if this is how we think God is guiding us, God says to that generation, you know what? I can't do business with you. No, sorry. Sorry. So this is, this is very important because it, it, it shows us, I think, in a very fundamental way that if we want to understand God, if we want to do business with God, so to speak, we must understand that God wants good for us and that he's not, that this whole enterprise of this world, like, you know, sometimes I think God, you know, we say, why is, why is this going on in my life? Why is that going on? Whatever it is. But do you realize that God didn't have to create the world to begin with? It's like we, we sort of like take for granted the fact that there's even a world. Who says God ever had to even make the world? 
to me, that's a meaningful thought because there's certain things that we absolutely accept as just givens. But, but we deprive ourselves from real perspective and, 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 and real insight and clarity into the, into the reason that we're alive if we take certain things for granted. You see, Rabbi Green once said, you know, we, we, we think we have eyes, so they're my eyes, right? I have a mouth, so it's my mouth. So I heard Rabbi Green say one time, you have eyes, they're your eyes, where's the receipt? Show me the receipt where you, where you bought these eyes. It's your mouth, where's the receipt that it belongs to you? Right? Show, show me where you bought that mouth. So, so in other words, when you understand that none of this has to be, none of this has to be, and that nonetheless it is, you're all of a sudden approaching everything from a very different perspective. So, so, now, so now the spies, why, why would the spies who are the, the, the leaders of the land, why would they bring back a bad report? So, or the leaders of the Jewish people. So, so there are many explanations, and we've, in other years we've gone over them. And I, I don't want to really go over them now. Um, so, so, but, but I want to mention how they went wrong, which is that they sin with their eyes, and and our eyes are really the gateways to our life, how we see things. What kind of Reb Shlomo would say all the time? What kind of eyes are you looking at the world with? This is, you know, and I, I heard an, another rabbi say, I don't remember who said it exactly, but such a simple but direct and true kind of uh, analogy or metaphor, whatever it is. Like so many people, I wear glasses, uh, and if you have a smudge on your glasses, you really see the world in a very, it's very annoying to look through a smudge. You know, sometimes I get a smudge on my glasses and I don't have like a proper rag, often I don't. And so I'll use like my tie or a shirt and then I make the smudge worse, you know. Some, some, some of my shirts will just wipe it clean and others like make it worse. And then I'm like looking through this worse smudge now and it starts to give me a headache. I, it drives me crazy, as, as you can hear. I'm like, but it really does. But a lot of people have um, certain personality traits which are smudges on their eyeglasses. And they see the world through these weird personality disorders. Like, everything makes me angry. <laughs> Why are you doing that? Hey, man, relax. <laughs> you know, it's like, just... So, so how we see the world is, is everything. It's absolutely everything. And, um, and so the spies sinned with their eyes. And, and this is very deep. I'll, I'll just mention one interesting uh, thing, which is that this, this Parsha ends with the mitzvah of tzitzis. And tzitzis is a fixing for the eyes. So that's, that's, that's interesting because you look at the tzitzis and it says it reminds you of the Torah and to do the commandments, right? So not only that, 
But this Parsha almost comes every single year. It came again this year. Shabbos Mavorachim Tammuz. What that means is the last Shabbos before the new month of Tammuz. And we have sort of like a, a mystical structure to the calendar where the last Shabbos of a month, it's called Shabbos Mavorachim. Mavorachim means to bless because we make a blessing on the new month that's coming. So the last Shabbos of every month contains the month ahead. Okay? In a, in a mystical way. Okay? So that means that this last Shabbos in Sivan, where we're reading this Parsha, which is, has tzitzis, which is the fixing of the eyes, isn't it interesting? Because each month has an aspect of the body that needs to be fixed. That the coming month, Tammuz, which, contains, which is contained within this Shabbos, right? is about the fixing of the eyes. That's the part of the body that needs to be fixed in Tammuz. And we have a concept in Torah, it's called Rafua Lifneha Hamaka, that Hashem sends the cure before the punishment, before the illness. So already, in the week before the, fix, the month which contained, which, where we have to fix our eyes, and by the way, Tammuz, this month, which is the fixing of the eyes, it was on Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, the first day of Tammuz, that the spies went out. So, so it all kind of goes together in a, in a very coherent, uh, interesting way. But what does it mean that they sin with their eyes? And we're going to get deeper now. So let me point out something, which is that the, the spies or the scouts or whatever you want to call them, they, they were really the leaders of the tribes. I mean, that, that's, they were Nisim. That That's the proper word to use for them. That means leaders of the tribes. But they're conversationally referred to as the spies, right? Okay. It's, it's an English word. It's not really appropriate or referenced in the Torah at all. But nonetheless, this is how people refer to them. Or they're referred to as the Miraglim. Now, what I think is, Miraglim sort of means spies. It means spies. What I think is so interesting is that, um, and my friend Eitan Katz pointed this out to me one time, that in this Parsha, which is known as the Parsha of the Miragla, right? The Parsha of the Spies. That's how it's known. That the word Miragla is never used. But if you want to find where Miragla is used, I noticed that it's used by um, Yosef and his brothers. So this will give us an, an, another perspective. Um, Yosef, remember, Joseph is... In, it has risen to number two, miraculously, in, in, in all of Egypt. And now he's older, and he looks different. He didn't have a beard, now he has a beard, and he's in this great position of power, and he's speaking Egyptian, and his brothers come, and they don't recognize him, and he puts them through the whole thing. Everyone knows the story. But in order to get them to do tshuva, to repair the damage that they had done earlier, he puts them through a whole series of events. And one of the things that he does is, early on, he says, why are you all, all of a sudden, this whole family is simultaneously coming into the city, one through each of the gates of the city, and he says, you are Miraglim. And he accuses his brothers and uses that word Miraglim. Now, we can begin to put it together, how this spies sin, okay? You see, the Miraglim, when they looked at the land of Israel, 
They only saw it on a superficial level. You see, this is what it means really to sin with the eyes. To look at each other superficially. Yosef, on a very deep level, was telling his brothers, you accused me of this, and you accused me of that, and you thought I was this type of person. I mean, Yosef was one of the greatest people that ever lived. And he, he calls them a raglam because he's telling them, you, you looked at me on such a superficial level. You didn't understand me at all. And the Meraglim looked at the land of Israel on a very superficial level. They didn't understand what God had in mind with us going into the land at all. And I, I heard Reb Shlomo say with my own ears, he said that in this day and age, it is a crime to be superficial. Talking to all of us, that it's a crime to be superficial. We can't afford to be superficial anymore. Which means that these sort of snap judgments, now I want to make a distinction because there is an intuitive quality that people have where your first instinct actually can be very wise and informative. So I don't mean to discount the power of that, but there's also a lot of first initial prejudice as well and first initial stupidity as well. And so when to, when to clarify with these things, you know? This is why, by the way, if for everyone who's looking for a, a marriage partner, it's, it's very important to make a list of the qualities, the attributes that you want in your marriage partner. And the reason why I'm saying this is because Sometimes we react on a very um, emotional level when someone proposes a match to us or if someone we find out someone is interested in us and we'll look at a, one thing in them and we dismiss them from the list. We dismiss them as a possibility. And yet the reality is, is that if you looked at your list, that thing that you're dismissing this other person based on, that's not in your top five at all. And yet somehow that becomes... Number one, how did that become number one when, when you're actually taking a moment to think it's not even in the top five? So, so, so we can't be Maraglam, and I know that if I had, I know that, that, that I was guilty of that, and I worked through that, and that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be married today if I was still making those stupid snap judgments. I, I would not be married today. I'm telling you. So it's, um, it's very, very important. Make a list so that you understand what qualities you need to look for in the other person. And, you know, and the other stuff, it's like, okay. You know, my father used to tell a joke. It's an old joke. But it's a, a woman goes into a, 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 you know, a, a marketplace and she wants to buy a chicken. So this is, I mean, like a live chicken, right? So this is like going, uh, this, is, this is going back a while. <laughs> so she's holding it up and to the light and she's checking between the feathers and she's everything like this. And the grocer comes up to her and says, lady, could you pass such a test? Right? <laughs> so so we, we have to be like, you know, yeah, you know, it's whatever it is. 
we have to be realistic, you know. But that's good because any good relationship has to have realism as its foundation. Otherwise, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, so the spies, I'll tell you just a beautiful thought, and then I want to go into something deeper, I think, which is, again, just to, just to talk about the spies and how they sin with their eyes with Israel. I heard Reb Shlomo say that what they, what they, what they saw, they, they looked into the heavenly, this is the way Reb Shlomo said it, they looked into the heavenly bank account of the Jewish people to see how many merits that we had. And they saw that we didn't have enough merits to get us into the land. Okay? So, but then he said, but this was a mistake, because he said that what they didn't realize was that Hashem wanted to give it to us as a gift. You hear that? Hashem wanted to give it to us as a gift. So a lot of times, it's true, we might not have enough merits for a particular thing, but that doesn't mean that Hashem can't give it to us as a gift. You see, that's, that's, a, that's, a, very, that's, a, very deep, that's a very deep idea. Um, and I just because we're on the subject, I'll tell you one last thing. I also heard it from Reb Shlomo. He said in the name of the Zohar that the spies saw rivers of blood coming out of Israel and that they saw every destruction and horrible thing that was going to happen to the Jewish people. But what they didn't see was that it was all going to happen because of them. So that's a, that's a chilling Torah there, you know. Um, anyway, so... So we're sent out. So how do you then see properly? So, so let's now transition to a more practical place, okay? How can we train our eyes to see the right things? Because if, if, if we see all the negative consequences of when we don't look at each other properly, when we don't look at the land of Israel properly, when we don't look at ourselves properly, right? You have to also look at yourself properly. You are obligated to be your own best friend, okay? Can I tell you that? You must be your own best friend. You know, if, if, if you're yelling at yourself all the time and telling yourself how, how uh, you know, unworthy you are and, and how stupid you are all of the time, what right do you have that anyone else should treat you any differently? Right? So, so it's, it, it doesn't begin with the, the next person not verbally abusing you or treating you with more respect. It begins with you treating yourself with more respect. And you may never be able to change or have power over the other person. But you certainly have the ability to improve your own internal dialogue. And if you start there and you begin to radiate more self-love and more confidence, believe me, it's going to radiate out and other people are going to respond to you in a different way. Okay? So, so again, we can't be spies with ourselves. We can't have these, this, this terrible superficial vision when we look at our own selves. That's very important too. Okay. So, so I... When the Jews are sent out, the Nasim, the leaders of the tribes, are sent out to the land, the Torah uses the word uh, viasuru. 
And that means to, it's translated as to spy out, to, to explore with your eyes. Okay? Now, so, so how, what is the dynamic of sight? Okay? The psycho-spiritual dynamic. How does, it, how does it actually work? The eyes work. Okay? Now, interestingly, um, the word um, ayin, ayin is a very interesting word because ayin means I, but ayin is also the name of a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a, a number to it. The number for ayin is 70. 70 is very interesting for the number 70 to be associated with the eyes for the reason that 70 represents the height of multiplicity in, in Torah, meaning to say 70 nations, right? And um, it's, it's, it's the idea that, that counteracts the, the thought in our mind that God is one. In other words, we, we've got this juxtaposition of two letters in the Torah. Both are silent. Very interesting. Both are silent. One is Aleph, which is one. Okay, and that stands in, a, in many ways for Hashem, God, because God is one. And then Ayin, which is also silent, which stands for 70. See, we know that God is one, but with our eyes tell us that there's 70, that there's lots of different powers in this world. So, so, the, this, so the eyes are really the gateway for like all sorts of questions about who's running the world. And what's really going on? Interestingly, when we say Shema Yisrael, which is a declaration of the oneness of God, of the Aleph, if you will, what do we do? We close our eyes. We cover our eyes in order to block out the notion that there are other powers in the world. We tap into the oneness which informs all of reality. That's what's going on. So, 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 we're going to, the men are sent out to explore um, the Asuru, to explore with their eyes the land. Now, this word is very meaningful, and we say it all the time in Shema. And now we're going to get into the dynamic that I was referring to earlier. Because it says in the third paragraph of Shema, the, the, the paragraph of Tzitzis, and what did we say? That Tzitzis is the fixing of the eyes. Right? Because it reminds us the oneness of God to do the commandments, right? Like the word tzitzit adds up to 613. The word tzitzit is the gematria of 600. And then there's five knots and eight strings. Five and eight is 13. So tzitzit adds up to 613. Okay? So that's, that's, so within the, the mitzvah of tzitzis, and remember we have that in this Parsha about the spies, it's the culmination of the Parsha about the spies. Um, it says, V'lo sasuru Okay, so God commands us, don't explore after your heart and after your eyes. Okay, so the idea is that Normally speaking, this is how we understand it, okay? Which is that the eye sees and then the heart desires, okay? 
This is how we understand it. The eye sees and then the heart desires. But now listen to something much deeper, okay? Because if you actually look at the words in the Torah, it says, Velosasuru, don't follow after your eyes, okay? After your heart, and after your eyes. So the Torah puts the heart first. Don't explore after your heart and after your eyes. And now we learn something much deeper. We think that the eye sees and the heart desires. But the heart is put first in the Torah. So you ready for this? If the heart doesn't desire, the eye won't see. Do you hear? If the heart doesn't desire, the eye won't see. You know, I, I, I was thinking, you know, this is to, uh, I'm saying this especially to, to men, but it's for women too, which is, you know, sometimes like a woman will ask you, oh, you went to that party? Was so-and-so there? So-and-so was there. What was she wearing? Right? Sometimes women ask a question like that. I, I'm going to tell you the answer. I don't know. <laughs> the answer will always be, I don't know. I didn't notice. And do you know why? Because if the heart doesn't desire, the eye doesn't see. Okay? And if you, if you have a problem looking at things, especially inappropriate things, the first place to check in with yourself is not with your eyes, it's with your heart. Okay? Now, now Rashi says, regarding the spies, they left, they left with a bad intention, meaning that, they're, that when they set out on their journey to look at the land, they had a bad intention, and they came back with a bad intention. Now that's, again, very, very significant, and we're going to go continue to go deeper here, which is that what Rashi seems to be saying is that on a deep level, whether they were conscious of it or not, they may have been unconscious of it, but nonetheless, when they left, they already knew they were going to bring back a bad report before they even brought the bad report back. And I can give you a parallel to this um, in something that I know to be true because this has been confirmed many, many times to me, which is journalists, when they write an article about something, they already know the piece that they want to write. When they interview you for a piece that they're writing, all they really want from you is a few quotes to support what they've already decided they're going to write. So, so that's an example of they know going in what they want, and now they're just looking to confirm it and everything like that. Now this is, again, very, very important regarding all of us. Because when we look at life, if we've decided already in our hearts that life is unfair, that nothing good is ever going to happen to me, that blah, all that stuff, all we're going to do is find examples which confirm and reinforce our perception and our lack of self-esteem, our lack of hope, our lack of belief in God's goodness. So again, the place to begin is your heart. Do I believe that God is good? Again, let me repeat, God did not have to create this world to begin with. Do you understand that? 
There's no have to. Like, you know, like I remember as a little kid saying very obnoxiously to my mother, my mother's like, I'm making you dinner. And I was like, you have to make me dinner because I'm just a kid and I have to eat. You know, I mean, it's like this obnoxious little kid. My, my mother's going out of her way and doing something nice. She doesn't have to do it. Okay, probably the state would be very curious if she's... But, you know, I mean, you know, there are a lot of kids, I'm sure, who have cereal for dinner and they pour it for themselves. I mean, if I'm genuinely hungry, I'm going to open up a cabinet and make something and maybe even learn how to cook. So that's, that, that's the truth. You know, so, so again, it's not like, well, God, you had to make the world. Why? Why did God have to make the world? I didn't have to make the world. So, so again, the heart desires and then the eye sees. All right? Which means that the battleground is not the eyes. The battleground is the heart. And it's very undemocratic because basically the eye has one vote and the heart has two votes. <laughs> because you can, you can tell yourselves, my, 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 my dad used to use this phrase in therapy a lot. He would say, you can't intellectualize an emotion, which means that, that you might think one thing and absolutely, I should absolutely date that person, or I should absolutely buy that house, whatever it is. But you have a feeling that tells you no. And you can make all the logical arguments in the world, but the mind has one vote, and the heart has two votes. And that's kind of how we're made, basically. You know, until Mashiach comes, until we become evolved into our next stage of, of creation, basically. So, so, so instead of trying to fight that dynamic, shift your focus to your heart, because that's where the action is. And try and figure out, what do I actually believe? And then believe it. Let me show you where else you see this. This is a very fundamental pasuk in the Torah. It says, um, toward the end of the first paragraph of Elenu, and this is actually from the Torah. It's actually from uh, Devarim 4.39, the book of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 39, okay? Very, very uh, landmark Pusik. It says, it says um, uh, Hashem says, you are to know this day and to take to your heart that Hashem is the only God in heaven above and the earth below there is none other. Now, what's, that's, it, it's very, very significant on a, on a number of levels. The idea that there ain't owed, that there is no other. By the way, I heard in the name of the Vilna Gon that the entire davening is just for us to read this one line. Because this is how we conclude the davening, that the entire prayer service is only for this one line, that we understand that all that exists is God. And by the way, I gave a talk, if you want to hear it, called Is This World Real or an Illusion? It's on TorahOnitunes.com. 
And basically, we get the two debates, because I heard in, from Rabbi Beryl Wine that according to the Ari, that on the deepest level, this world isn't real. And according to the Vilna Go, no, it is real. And basically, they're both taking it from the perspective of this word, Einod, that there's nothing but God. So, so there's a lot to it. But I want to focus us in on a different part of the same verse, which is it says, you are to know this day. What does it mean, know? Um, that means in the mind. Viedata, that has the word das. Das means knowledge. That means the mind. Okay, so, so listen to how nice this, this verse would read if, if we only use that phrase. You are to know this day that Hashem is the only God. That works, right? But that's not what it says. It says, you are to know this day and take to your heart <laughs> that Hashem is the only God. In other words, clearly, it's not sufficient just to know something in your head. Clearly, you also have to have it in your heart. And if you just have it in one place or another place, it doesn't work. There's a phrase that was very popular when I was growing up among uh, uh, Jews who didn't, uh, were keeping the, the, the mitzvahs so much, but, you know, we're into the, the Judaism aspect. They, they call them cardiac Jews. So, so the, this idea that you can have it in your heart, but meanwhile, you don't have any Jewish education. It's not in your mind, so that doesn't work. Or you can be like one of these guys who can know everything, right? But you haven't got anything in your heart, so you're like walking around with this very weird presentation of Judaism. It's got to be the heart and the mind together. So, so I want to go further. So the heart, as we're saying, has two votes. And now, I want to make it more practical again. And this is something that came to me yesterday. I was very excited about this thought, okay? So how do we do it? Because you see, the spies, they, they had all sorts of rationalizations. It wasn't so simple. They didn't, they didn't just go out saying, this is going to be great. We're going to mess up the entire history of the world. <laughs> Let's go team. That, that wasn't it at all. You know, according to one very high-minded approach, I, I hear this a lot in Chabad circles, that really they, they loved the idea that God was doing miracles in the desert and, and that God was, like, so to speak, almost openly revealed and bringing down bread from the sky, manna was falling, you know, and, you know, water was miraculously provided, and these, these clouds of glory which surrounded us, all this great thing, and there was time to, you didn't have to make a living, you could just, like, contemplate God, and they, they, they didn't want to go into the land of Israel, where it would sort of be like a, a nature-based relationship, where it's sort of like, we've got to dig and plant and, and you know, do, do business and, and all, all the sorts of stuff that would really like distract us from serving God. So, so there, are, there are approaches that the spies were actually very high-minded, which is, and they may be true, by the way, but what, what, what I'm trying to tell you is that it wasn't so simple that they weren't bad people. They weren't trying to bring back a bad report. 
Okay? Like that may have been an unconscious type of thing. But consciously, they were not trying to mess us up. Okay? The, so the point is, is that they were very confused. Now, there's something called, in Hasidus, when we talk about the, the rectification of a person's soul, when we talk about us really kind of like fulfilling our potential and everything like that, they talk about this idea of, um, I think it's called beer, which is clarification, sort of like really having clarity as to what our actual motives are and, and, and getting rid of the bad stuff, that type of separation and purification, sorting out, okay? So clearly, there was a lot of sorting out that needed to be done among the spies and, and among all of us as well, since we're still in that same place. Remember, when we ate from the Eitzah Das Tovara, Das means an intermingling. It means knowledge, but, you know, like... Um, uh, you, you know, on, a, uh, on another level, um, to, to know in, in Hebrew also means uh, marital intimacy. In other words, it's a very close uh, intermingling that takes place. And so when we ate from the Eitzadas Tovara, the tree of knowledge, it mixed together good and bad in our mind in a way that became very confusing. In other words, everything became very relativistic. And so... So we're still trying to sort out and clarify what our real motives are and things like that. So this is something that is not just with the spies, but you really see it like with a bang with the spies, but you also see it all the way back from the Garden of Eden. Okay, now here's the point, and we're going to begin to wrap it up, but I want you to hear this point. So, so Kabbalistically speaking, the narrative of the creation of the world is that God shown this great light into these vessels. And the vessels couldn't hold the light. And so the vessels shattered. And there were all these sparks that fell down. And our job is to uplift the falling sparks. Okay? And, and whenever we're doing mitzvahs and making blessings and traveling to different countries around the world, what are we doing? We're elevating the fallen sparks. Okay? This is sort of like the the, the Kabbalistic view of, of the fixing of the world, okay? Now, the Ari in, in the Eitz Chaim says something amazing, which is that there are actually 288 sparks. And I, I heard uh, from someone who learns that those sparks have broken down even further, okay? So there's more than that. But, but I guess, primarily speaking, there's 288 sparks, Okay. Now, if you want to know more about that, you can look in this book, Inner Space, by Rabbi Ari Kaplan, and he talks about it on page 82. And you can get more in-depth how they learn it out from the Torah, this number 288. It's very fascinating, very, very interesting way that this number is arrived at. Okay. So, so these are the fallen sparks. This is the fixing of the world, raising up this 288. So I was sitting in shul yesterday, and I was looking at this at, at the name of the parsha, Shlach Lecha, and a lot of people um, make a contrast because there's another parsha in the Torah, which sounds very similar, which is Lech Lecha. So, and they almost mean the opposite thing. Shlach Lecha means that you should send out, you're going to send out these spies, and there's a, all sorts of negative 
associations with it because obviously it, it sort of like rewires human history because all of a sudden instead of going into Israel with Moshe, we're wandering in the desert for 40 years, Moshe doesn't lead us in, a generation dies out. All these associations with the words shlach lecha, okay, with the intentions of the spies. Lech lecha, on the other hand, is Abraham Avinu also going to Israel, but making it to Israel and having the purest intentions. So shlach lecha, not so good. Lech lecha, fantastic. So I thought to myself, what if you took the gematria, the numerical equivalent of shlach lecha, and you subtracted the numerical equivalent of lech lecha. What number would you get? So shlach lecha, which is confused intentions, right, is the number 388. Lech lecha, which is pure intentions, is the number 100. So 388 minus 100 equals 288, which is the number of sparks that we have to uplift in order to rectify the world. In other words, when we take our confused intentions and we clarify it and we remove, we remove all the stuff that's actually L'Shem Shemayim for the sake of heaven, what's left is just the stuff that isn't for the sake of heaven. That's the 288 that's left in Shlach Lecha. And that stuff which is not for the sake of heaven, that's the stuff that we've got to fix in ourselves. Okay? Now, how do you do that? And I'm just going to end with a story. Okay? Which is a... I wish I could tell you the name of the rabbi, but I think it was one of the Bali Musser. And uh, it's one of my favorite stories, actually. I heard it from Rabbi Green. So, so it goes like this. There's a rab, famous rab, it's a real story, uh, in a town. And someone from a nearby town, which was kind of a schlep, was over in another area, but not so far away, but it was a schlep, asked him to do him some kind of favor. And I don't know what the favor was at all, but the Rav wasn't sure whether it was proper to do this thing for the person, whether it was halachic, whether it was permissible to do this. Okay? And so he's thinking, trying to think through, is it halachic? Am I allowed to do this thing for him or not? And he didn't know. And now, listen to this. Listen to the. You talk about self-mastery. What, who we're descended from, who we're led by. He said to himself, you know what? Maybe the reason why I'm confused, and I think maybe it's not permitted, is because I just don't want to schlep all the way to the next town to do it. So you know what he did? He got into his horse or carriage or whatever it was. He went to the next town. He sat on a bench in a park there. And he thought through the problem again. And he said, you know what? It's not permissible to do it. <laughs> but now he was free of the fear that the reason why he wasn't, didn't want to do it was because of laziness or something like this. And so he got back on his horse and he went back to, the, to his home. And now he knew with a full heart that he had clarified his intention and, 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 and knew that what he was doing was actually for the sake of heaven. And so, so this is how I want to leave, leave us today, is, is that we have to clarify why we are doing what we're doing, why we are saying what we're saying, 
Ask yourself before you do something, why am I doing this? Before you say something, why am I saying this? Is it to help the next person? Or is it to advance some sort of weird personal agenda? You know, I, I once made this observation, which is I noticed how certain people shake hands one time. And I noticed that some people extend their hand because they want to shake your hand. They want to honor you. And I noticed that other people extend their hand because they want to give you the opportunity to honor them. <laughs> like, I'm extending my hand so that you can shake my hand. You know, so... So a person has to look into their own motivations. And when we clarify our thoughts, then we're able to uplift them and we're able to do things for the sake of heaven. And this will lead toward the fixing of the entire world.